Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, my meeting with the stake president. Now, before I go any further, I want to assure you that this is not a recent meeting with the stake president. In fact, this meeting occurred almost exactly two years ago. This episode should be releasing on Sunday, September 15th, 2019. This meeting with my stake president occurred on Thursday, September 14th, 2017. So it was almost exactly two years ago from the date that this podcast will be released. It was two years ago on a night just like tonight. I'll be going into some detail regarding what occurred at this meeting, as well as what led up to this meeting, as well as what has transpired or not transpired since this meeting occurred two years ago. But before I get there, I need to talk about a number of things that have come up by way of comments to Radio Free Mormon and prior episodes, both here as well as comments that have occurred at other places on the internet. Now, this first one has to do with the podcast that Bill Reel and I put out regarding Elder Ted Collister's five-minute fireside, A Case for the Book of Mormon. You may recall that in part two of that podcast, I noticed that there was an anomaly with one of the flip chart pages that Elder Collister was using in order to present his case. On one of the pages, he or someone else had written the words, Other Evidences, and then they had below that, four numbers. Number one, Bible prophecy. Number two, witnesses. Number three, archaeology. And number four, the doctrine. While preparing for the podcast, I noticed something unusual about number four, the doctrine. And that is that the word doctrine was not what was originally written on the page. Instead, the word doctrine is written on a new piece of paper, a rectangular piece of paper, which was then pasted onto the page after the word the. This led me to suppose in the podcast that what had happened was simply that the word doctrine was misspelled or fudged in some way when it was being written, and that instead of writing a new page with all the other words in front of it and getting to it and writing the doctrine correctly, they decided to go for the down and dirty expedient of simply taking another piece of paper from somewhere else, cutting out a rectangle, writing doctrine correctly on it, and then taping it or pasting it over the offending word. As it turns out, that supposition was incorrect, and this was pointed out at ex-Mormon Reddit by a poster who goes by the handle Kinderhooks and Blow. No, Kinderhookers and Blow. (laughs) I have no idea what that means. Kinderhookers and Blow. And actually, if I'm reconstructing this correctly from ex-Mormon Reddit, it was the poster named All Truth is Useful, who made this astonishing find, and it was Kinder Hookers and Blow who did the additional work of doing some basic contrast to the higher res version to the screenshot of Elder Collister's video so that what was actually written on the back of the page, in other words, originally written under the square that was placed over it and doctrine written on it, can be plainly seen in the screenshot. I just want to make sure I'm giving credit where credit is due. Obviously, some very smart people listen to this podcast. So what this person, All Truth is Useful, did at ExMormon Reddit was they noticed that when this piece of paper was turned back and over the flipboard to show the next page, the back of this page was briefly flashed to the camera. This person then took a screenshot of the flashing of the back page. Then Kinderhookers and Blow, I still can't say that without laughing, turned it upside down And by this means, we can plainly see that the word behind doctrine was not a misspelling of the word doctrine at all. In fact, the word was savior. 
It's as plain as day in the enhanced screenshot provided by Kinderhookers and Blow at ExMormon Reddit. Now, I don't know that this necessarily means anything terribly damning about Elder Collister. The doctrine he did go and talk about all had to do with the Savior as it related to the Book of Mormon. So when he wrote the Savior originally, which we now know that he did, he apparently at some point after writing it decided that he didn't want it to say the Savior. Instead, he wanted to say the doctrine. The funny thing is that instead of just writing the page over again and writing the doctrine instead of the Savior, he took a piece of paper, covered over the word Savior, and put doctrine in its place. The question, of course, is why this would be done instead of simply rewriting the page. After thinking about this a little bit, it occurred to me that the answer to this is probably because this decision to change Savior to Doctrine was not made immediately after the word was written. Instead, there are two other pages that are written after this. The next page has the case for the Book of Mormon in capital letters. And then after that, there appears to be another page which has a nice piece of artwork which shows a couple of logs in a big flame and it's called Five Minute Fireside. So my expectation then is that the decision was not made to change the Savior to the Doctrine until after all of the pages had been written and then it was decided that it would be a big pain to simply rewrite this page because then you'd have to rewrite this page, the page after it, and then finally the last page with the artwork on it. And that was probably just too much to go through. So they went to this stopgap measure in order to fix the problem. One wag at ExMormon Reddit referred to this as burying the Savior. And this wag at Radio Free Mormon might refer to it as covering up Christ. But really, I can see nothing surreptitious or malignant or horrible about what was done here. It simply strikes me as odd that this was done in this way, and frankly, that a simple flip chart was used in this video produced by a church that has $32 billion in the stock market. I would think they could have upgraded their production values just a bit. So, my thanks and congratulations to the very smart people at ExMormon Reddit who figured out the answer to this mystery. The case is solved. The next item has to do with my use of statistics in the same podcast with Elder Collister's case for the Book of Mormon. In that podcast, I talked about how it is that as a matter of probability, we would expect the Book of Mormon to have a certain number of hits or connections with things as they occurred in ancient America, just as a matter of statistics. And I used as one illustrative example the story of how it was when I was in fourth grade that my dad taught me a new way to play solitaire, and that was by shuffling a 52-card deck and then going through the cards one at a time and naming the cards Ace, Two, Three, Four, Five, Six, Seven, Eight, Ninth, and Jack, Queen, King four times as I went through and seeing if you could get through without having the card that you're naming and turning up actually match the card that you are saying out loud. The point of that was to show that even though that sounds at first blush like it would be relatively easy to do, actually it's very difficult to do and to get through the entire deck without actually getting a hit between the card that you name and the card that you turn up. But then I proceeded with a statistical analysis, and I got over my head with the statistical analysis. But my line of statistics was that there's an even chance of hitting a card you're naming in the first 13, a 2-in-1 chance of hitting a card you're naming in the first 26 cards, a 3-in-1 chance by the time you get to 39 cards, and a 4-in-1 chance by the time you get to 52 cards. In other words, by the time you get through the whole deck, there's a 4-in-1 chance of hitting a card that you have named out loud. I am once again very fortunate to have super smart people listening to the podcast and chiming in with their comments. On August 27th, a listener named Chad posted this comment on the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage in response to that podcast. And as it turns out, 
the odds of getting through the deck are actually much, much slimmer than four and one. Here's what Chad says. Forgive the geek out moment, but I can't resist adding some clarity to the discussion regarding statistical probability. My calculation of the probability of winning the card game described is 1.6%. 1.6%, not the 25% or 20% suggested in the podcast. It's calculated like this. Probability of winning a single draw is one in 13. Well, at least I got that part right which means 92.3%, and then he says probability of winning 52 draws in a row is 92.3% times 52 equals 1.55%, which he apparently has rounded up to 1.6%. In the case of the card game, you don't want matches, so winning means making it through the whole deck with zero matches. But if a person plays the game with the opposite goal, i.e. they want to get at least one match, the probability flips. The chance of getting at least one guess correct is 100% minus 1.55% equals 98.45%. The point is exactly the same as brought out in the podcast, but the numbers are actually even more stacked in Joseph Smith's favor than is suggested by the numbers mentioned in the recording. Bottom line, if you are making enough random guesses, it is a near certainty that one or more will end up being correct. And if you look at only the correct guesses, ignoring the large number of incorrect guesses, it will look like the person guessing has an uncanny ability for predicting the unpredictable. Thanks RFM and Bill Reel for another interesting discussion. Well, thank you, Chad, for pointing out the fact that my statistics were way, way off. And actually, you have made my point much better than I made it in the original podcast. A similar point was made by a poster named Josephus Smythe, who actually made the point the day earlier on August 26th. He goes into a bit more detail with regards to the statistical analysis and manages to come out with the exact same result as the post I just read from Chad. So I won't go through all of it here, but I did want to give credit to Josephus Smythe as well. His first paragraph is this. In this podcast, RFM provides a nice analogy for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints claim that Book of Mormon hits provide evidence for its veracity in the form of a solitaire game. The point is so clever that it would be a shame if it were marred by a miscommunication of the probabilistic analysis. Unfortunately, there are some problems with the discussion in the podcast. Basically, RFM mishandles probabilities by adding them instead of multiplying them. However, an accurate derivation of the probabilities involved isn't too hard to generate. I'll try to do so here. (laughs) And then he goes into a very complex, at least to me, analysis of the probabilities. But as I said, it looks like he did exactly the same analysis that Chad did and coming up with the exact same result. His bottom line is, conversely, the probability of there being at least one hit losing the game, and this is really RFM's point, is quite high. One in 0.016 or about 98 times in 100, even though the probability of a single hit is extremely low. So the probability of a single hit is extremely low, but the probability of getting all the way through the deck without getting at least one hit will happen about one in 98 times. That's how difficult it is to do, which helps explain to me why it is that my dad, when he showed it to me, was very surprised when I shuffled the cards and went through it the first time and I went all the way through the 52 cards without hitting one card that I named. I actually saw his eyes bug out of his head and he said, okay, try that again. And so I tried it again and I failed and I failed and I failed and I failed. And no matter how many times I tried after that, I could not get through the deck without hitting a card that I was naming. That's what we call 
beginner's luck. So once again, I'm very grateful to have such smart people in so many different fields listening to this podcast and helping me along in fields that I am not so well acquainted in as I am with Mormonism and Mormon history. As the saying goes, I went into law because I stink at math. The next comment has to do with yet another correction, but this one is not in the field of statistics and probabilities. Rather, it is in the area of English. In my more recent podcast titled Elder Snow Goes Rogue, I had talked about the use of a transitive versus an intransitive sentence. And I had talked about a transitive sentence as being a sentence that says subject, verb, object, or somebody does something to something, and an intransitive sentence being a sentence in which the subject is dropped, and we simply say that something happened. On September 9th, Mike makes this comment and corrects me on my usage of the term, where actually what I meant to say was passive versus active. RFM, thank you for your incredible podcast. Wanted to correct one thing, if that's okay. Certainly, Mike, it's always okay. Going on. The sentence, it did not get done, does not actually use either a transitive or intransitive verb. In this form, the verb is get with auxiliary verb did not, modifying it. And in this form, did not get is a linking verb. It is the subject and the adjective done is called a subject complement. It is not an object, but the verb is still neither transitive nor intransitive. Now, honestly, this is all gobbledygook to me, but it's clear that Mike knows what he's talking about, so I'm willing to be corrected. I think the forms you want, Mike goes on, I think the forms you want to be comparing are active versus passive voice. And here Mike is absolutely correct. I was saying transitive and intransitive, and what I meant was active versus passive voice. Active voice makes the subject the actual actor in the sentence. Chad threw the ball to Dave, he gives as an example. Passive voice is your clever way of placing an object in place of the subject, and then using an auxiliary modifier. In this case, was to avoid naming the actor while still forming a valid sentence. The ball was thrown to Dave. So the active form being Chad threw the ball to Dave, the passive form being the ball was thrown to Dave. Both forms are transitive because they have an indirect object to Dave, but passive voice successfully masks the original actor. Hope this helps. Again, awesome podcast. Yes, Mike, it does help. And actually, I've made this mistake before. This is one of the things that early on in my life, I got mixed up. The active versus the passive and instead of saying that correctly as you pointed out saying transitive and intransitive I will try and keep that in mind for the future and once again the very point that I was making in the podcast is that when you use the active voice you are writing or speaking more clearly you are saying who the subject is that is doing the action to the object and the passive voice is done to mask who it is who's actually doing something to the object. Mike gives the example of Chad threw the ball to Dave, that's active, or passive being the ball was thrown to Dave, where we have no idea who threw the ball to Dave. We're masking the fact that it was Chad who threw the ball to Dave. And this kind of voice can be done completely innocently in a sentence, as long as the context around it clues the reader in as to who it is who's throwing the ball to Dave. The problem with this is, as George Orwell noted about a hundred years ago, that the passive form is frequently used intentionally in order to occlude the truth from the reader or the listener. It is frequently used in politics, we can see it's frequently used in religion, when a statement is being made where the communication is intended to be masked as to who the person is who's doing the action. The classic example is mistakes 
were made. I think there's even a book by that title, Mistakes Were Made. Well, that is the passive voice. Once again, thank you, Mike. That's the passive voice. So who made the mistakes? And what were those mistakes that were made? The subject in that sentence is masked. And in such sentences, it is masked intentionally to keep information from the reader or the listener. Next, we have this comment from John Roberts from September 9th regarding my episode, Elder Snow Goes Rogue, in which I parsed out the interview that Elder Snow had on the Mormon Land podcast. Here's what John Roberts says. By the way, I'm honored to have the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court listening to this podcast and weighing in with his opinion. Quote, I can't listen to any more of this bullshit. Whoa. Language? Can't you just play the segments and let us listen to the interview? Every time I begin to get into it, you say, stop the tape, as though we were idiots and can't possibly draw our own conclusions. It's aggregating, by which I think John Roberts means it's aggravating. It's aggregating. Why do you think you need to interrupt it every 10 seconds to put it into one-syllable words for us? On behalf of all the other low-grade morons, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it since I can't possibly think for myself. And not being an anti-Mormon, I might miss something you think I ought to know. I ought to check in here more often. Hey, maybe you should do a commentary on the Book of Mormon. Stopping every few seconds, we ought to finish it in, say, 128 years, give or take 15 years. Meanwhile, go stop the tape. Okay, John Roberts, thank you very much for that constructive criticism. I will tell you, though, that the whole purpose of the podcast was to give my commentary and insights into what it was that Elder Snow was saying, and that if you wanted to actually listen to his original interview at Mormonland, you can go there and listen to it and not be bothered with me saying stop the tape every three seconds. But I'm really glad that you're listening, and I hope things are going well for you on the Supreme Court. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to this podcast. Another comment I received also had to do with the Elder Snow Goes Rogue podcast, and this has to do with the point at which Elder Snow tried to throw the art department under the bus for promoting the false impression that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon in a manner other than putting his seer stone in a hat and then putting his face over the hat. In the podcast, I had said how ridiculous that was in a church that is so hierarchically structured and that nothing can be done without approval from the top leaders of the church. My argument was based upon common sense and logic, but I've received two communications now with inside information as to how paintings are actually solicited and approved by the church, which corroborate exactly what it was I was saying. On September 9th, I received this comment from Lauren Capson, which states, I served in a Boy Scout calling with a painter. I asked how he gets the commission to paint for the church. Okay, so now we get some inside information. If you go to the church museum, you would recognize many of his paintings, a few of which hang in Mormon temples. So obviously, this is a very prominent Mormon painter. He responded, quote, The church issues a request for work to the general list of church-approved painters. The approved painters who want to do the work will submit examples of work and a sketch, unless they have an in as he did. When the work is approved, the painter is commissioned to do the painting, i.e. down payment. Paintings of Joseph Smith are, along the entire path, checked and approved through the commission of the painting. When Snow said, that's Elder Snow, when Elder Snow said the artists are basically freewheeling their inspiration, it smacked of throwing the painters under the bus. I agree. In fact, the church approves of those paintings before they are ever hung in a chapel or temple. It is not the painters who decide what the church will hang in their buildings. That makes absolute sense to me, and thank you, Lauren Capson, for giving us that behind-the-scenes view in how the church commissions 
and approves its artwork. In addition to that comment, which was made publicly by Lauren Capson, I also received a personal email from an individual who wishes to not be named. And the reason this person wishes not to be named is because this person is going to dish on things that go on behind the scenes in the church as it relates to the commissioning and production and monitoring and approval of artwork. And I will say here parenthetically that the fact that a person wishes to not be named is completely understandable, but also at the same time completely illustrative of the kinds of pressures that are put on members of the church to conform and to not come out and say anything that could be construed as being critical of the leaders, even when such a comment is made only to address something that a leader has said publicly, which was manifestly not true. Here is the email, which I am going to edit a bit as I go through to redact the names of the innocent. RFM, hello there. I am in the middle of listening to your latest podcast, Elder Snow Goes Rogue. I only got in about 22 minutes and had to write this email. I should note that I am including my name on the email, but wish to remain anonymous. And that wish will be granted by Radio Free Mormon. Of course it will be. I have been hearing a lot of people mention that church artists are getting thrown under the bus for depictions of church history, specifically the translation of the Book of Mormon. It is a ridiculous notion that the artists are rogue using common sense, like I did, but I felt I should write and let you know that I have first-hand experience with artists that have done work with church officials and for the church. And here he mentions the name of a very famous LDS artist. It's one that you would probably be familiar with, and I expect it's the same artist to which Lauren Capson referred in her comment that I read just a couple of minutes ago. At any rate, this very famous artist is mentioned here in this email. The author of the email continues, When I went to school for a time at a certain college, I met this artist and got to know him pretty well during my own study of art. I even painted with him over a summer in his own home studio. During that time, he was in the middle of creating a large painting for the church, and he would describe how the church was as a client. Hmm, this could get interesting. If I was forced to use a single word that would describe the church as an art client based on this artist's description, I would choose the word picky. The church is very specific about what they want to be depicted for their teaching material, temple artworks, and prints. They are known to be fickle sometimes as well. For example, it was a long-standing condition for this artist that angels be painted without beards. And then, after years of this rule, the church changed this rule. The point is this. Paintings that the church purchases are heavily scrutinized by the Quorum of the Twelve, not only by the department for which the work is created. This artist, perhaps because of his popularity with members, often met with members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and he would relate those experiences fondly and felt that it strengthened his own testimony of the church. So that's good. I know this isn't a shocking revelation. People who purchase art spend a lot of money and pay to have exactly what they want. So, in other words, this is just the way things are normally in the art world. People who purchase art spend a lot of money and pay to have exactly what they want. Even though the church is also known for not being the most generous client as well, I just felt this might be another kind of evidence beyond logic and reasoning. If you feel you would like to share this with others, I would re-ask that you keep this artist's name out of it, which I am scrupulously doing, as well as my own name, Ditto, the scrupulosity. I think this artist would feel as though he had somehow betrayed the church by talking about the mundane interactions of dealing with an art client, i.e. the church in this case, the art client. I don't think he or I could have imagined at the time that this would ever really be an issue. I mean, why would the church want to distance themselves from the very artists that they hire? 
I hope this was helpful. I'm going to go finish the rest of the episode now and continue to work on my own painting. Thanks for all your work. Well, thank you very much, anonymous artist who has shared this email with Radio Free Mormon. So the bottom line on all this information is this. The church has strategically hidden from its members for a hundred years the true method in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. The church has commissioned artists to depict the manner in which Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, and they didn't allow the artists to go rogue, go freewheeling, paint whatever they wanted. Instead, the church dictated very closely what it was that they were to paint and how they were to paint it. The church directed this from the highest levels, the Quorum of the Twelve, every step of the way. Every depiction that was painted and produced for the church and published in church periodicals of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon was exactly the way the leaders of the church told the artist to paint it. Period. End of story. And so now, in 2019, when the internet has been getting the information out there that that is not really the way that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, and the church has been forced to write an essay about the way in which Joseph Smith really wrote the Book of Mormon, and even include it in their new volume of Saints, the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they are casting about for a way to make it so the leaders of the church are not the ones who are responsible for suppressing this information from the members of the church. And what they do, or at least what some leaders of the church do, including Elder Snow, is to point the finger at the artists and blame them. They throw the artists and the painters under the bus and say they are the ones who are coming up with these paintings. The leaders of the church had nothing to do with it, even though that idea makes absolutely no sense, as I pointed out in my Elder Snow Goes Rogue podcast. And that fact is corroborated by these stories from artists and painters behind the scenes who know the real scoop and how it really goes down. And Elder Snow knows this too. So in spite of the fact that Elder Snow is actually being more transparent than we have seen any general authority be in public in recent memory, he was also stating some things that he knew to be outright fabrications. And this is one of them. He knew leaders of the church were the ones responsible for the artwork, but he blamed the artists anyway. Well, that about wraps up all the announcements that I had prior to my getting into the main subject of tonight's podcast, my meeting with the stake president. As I said at the outset of this podcast, this is not a recent meeting with the stake president. Rather, it happened almost exactly two years ago. It was the evening of September 14th, 2017, when I met with the stake president, and the meeting came about in this way. Among my many acquaintances in the church in the area where I live, there is a very, very special relationship I have with a man whose first name is Ben. I have a great deal of respect for Ben. Ben is very much a believing member of the church, and yet he has that unusual quality of being able to discuss issues regarding the church with others, such as myself, with an open mind and without being judgmental. Ben is a wonderful person, and he has a wonderful family as well. If ever there were a poster family for the good that Mormonism can do, that is Ben and his family. I have known Ben not only in the church arena, but also in the legal arena. Ben has, to my knowledge, never been in trouble with the law, but there was an incident, which I'm not going to go into specifics about, a few years back, where I needed Ben's testimony in a highly contentious case because he was in possession of certain facts that would help my client. The situation was a bit sticky because if Ben signed a declaration and entered into the fray, he was putting his reputation at risk by certain people on the other side who had no compunction about slandering people who crossed them and manufacturing all sorts of unfounded allegations. That was the fray in which I was asking Ben 
to enter and make his statement. And even though Ben realized that he was putting himself and his reputation at risk by entering the fray, the cause of truth was so important to Ben that he did so anyway. So I have great respect for Ben's integrity as well as his friendship. So having said all of that, Ben through his faithfulness and good works has managed to be called as the second counselor in the stake presidency. And the reason I tell you all this about Ben is because this is how my meeting with the stake president came about. It did not originate with two men on my doorstep handing me a summons to see the stake president. Instead, it was much more informal and friendly than that. Ben, now the second counselor in the stake presidency, reached out to me informally and told me that the stake president had heard of me and wanted to know more about me and wanted to meet with me in his office to get to know me better. This, as I say, was two years ago, September 14th, 2017, and as of this time, I had not been going to church for several years. I had also, prior to this, posted a number of articles that could be characterized as critical of the church at the blog called Rational Faiths. In addition to that, I had now been podcasting as Radio Free Mormon for approximately one year. I did not know why it was the state president wanted to talk with me, but I had my suspicions, and I will confess to you readily that I was somewhat concerned and trepidatious regarding this meeting with the stake president. I asked Ben if there was a hidden agenda. He assured me that there was not and that the stake president was a good guy who simply wanted to get to know me better. I agreed to the meeting, which was set for 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 14th. At that time, I was living by myself in an apartment not that far from the stake center. I was also going through a highly contentious divorce at the time, and I wondered if that might have something to do with this meeting that had been arranged with the state president and his desire to get to know me better. And so, on this beautiful evening in late summer of 2017, I left my apartment and walked to the stake center. Also, as part of the meeting with the state president, I had asked Ben to be in attendance at the meeting so it would not just be me and the state president, but Ben would be there as well. As it turned out, I think that was a good move. The meeting itself lasted for about an hour and a half, and so you know, I am not going off my recollection from two years ago as to what happened that night. The very next morning after the meeting, I got up and I made copious and detailed notes regarding what transpired at the meeting so that I would not forget what happened. I have printed off a copy of those notes and I'm going to be reading from them and referring to them throughout the balance of this podcast so you can know that this was a contemporaneously recorded recollection of what transpired. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Last night, I had a meeting with the stake president. The invitation to meet with him had been extended by an old friend of mine, who had been subsequently called to be the second counselor in the stake presidency. I walked over to the stake center, arriving at about 7.35 p.m. Okay, I was a little late. I wore slacks and a button-down shirt open at the collar. I chose a white shirt with light stripes so the state president could see I was wearing my garments. Now, this is not a situation where I was just putting on garments to impress the state president. I wore my garments continuously and regularly, even at that time. But I also knew I would be sending messages even before I opened my mouth. And my goal was to successfully navigate the meeting with a positive attitude, letting him know my position on things without appearing antagonistic and avoiding any further meetings or questions of discipline. So those are the goals that were in my mind as I approached the stake center that night. I walked into the building and nobody was present in the hallway chairs outside the stake offices. So I walked down the hallway and back looking at the church art on the walls. Oh, there's the church art again. Looking at the church art on the walls and postings on the bulletin boards. 
Still, nobody came out to get me. So I walked all the way to the other end of the hallway where I heard voices coming from an open door. This was in the area of the stake presidency offices. I recognized the voice of my friend talking, that would be Ben, and went to the open door and knocked and asked if they were waiting for me. And they ushered me in. My friend was present at my request. The meeting went from 7.40 p.m. or so up until 9 o'clock p.m. I have to say that in retrospect, it went very well. The state president was not antagonistic at all, but was very youthful and exuberant and interested and polite. I had been planning what to say if he asked me to give an opening prayer, but it never came up. I thought it might be a bit awkward if he asked me to say the opening prayer, so I had some plans in mind, but he did not ask me to give an opening prayer. In fact, he did not have anybody give an opening prayer. He asked me to sit down, which I did, next to my friend, and the state president took his seat behind his desk. Instead of asking for a prayer, he just said that he had heard a lot about me and wanted to get to know me better. Well, of course, I'm wondering what the heck does he mean by he's heard a lot about me. So I responded that I had heard a lot about him too, that I had been doing some background research and that everybody I had talked to said he was a very nice man, even the people who didn't like him. There was much laughter at this. And I have to add here, so you can understand what happened during the course of this meeting, is that there was a lot of laughter throughout the meeting. This was a very good-natured, friendly meeting. And some of the comments I will relate, such as this one, could sound snarky if you don't understand that this was all being taken in very good humor and everybody was laughing and having a good time. The state president asked me who my sources were, and I said I had to keep them confidential. I said I understood he was a CES director, and he said that he was. He said he had done some research on me too, and that he understood I had joined the church when I was 18. I was wondering what he meant when he said he had done some research on me. I said yes. He later said that I was ordained a high priest in 1997, and I said I didn't know the year, but I guess it was around that time. He asked if my ordination to be a high priest was to be called into a bishopric or into the high council. I was surprised he didn't know, and I said so. He said that really, pretty much the only research he had done on me was looking at my church membership records. I asked him if my membership records showed my homosexual tendencies. Once again, there was a great deal of laughter at this. He said they didn't. I said I understood that there is an asterisk or something that gets put on a member's records in such cases. He did not respond to that directly, but he asked me to tell him about how it was I joined the church. I gave him an abbreviated version of my best friend in high school being Mormon and how I went to church dances for years and ultimately ended up joining the church right after I graduated high school in 1978. I mentioned going on my mission to Japan the following year. He seemed impressed that I went on a mission only a year after I was baptized. I told him about going to college at the University of Texas during the 1980s. He asked about my attendance at Institute. I told him I went to lots of Institute classes and learned lots of important things there, and that I even taught an Institute class myself in the spring of 1989 during my last semester of law school. He asked who the Institute director was at the time, since he was a CES man himself and might know him. I told him that the name was Brother Sill, but the state president couldn't place the name. I mean, it was a long time ago. So I described what a good guy and teacher Brother Sill was. I quickly took the state president up to the present with a background of my schooling, my career, family, and etc. I then started talking about the current situation with my separation and pending divorce. 
For some reason, I started talking about our daughter, who had just returned from her mission to Germany, how her mother had told her some things about me, some true, some not, about how my daughter had cut off communication with me since April because of it. Here my friend brought up all the lengthy faith-promoting emails I had been sending to my daughter every week. Okay, a little background. Every single week, I would write very lengthy emails, very supportive emails, very faith-promoting emails to my daughter on her mission in Germany. And I forwarded copies of those to my friend, Ben, so he could read them as well. It turned out that was a good move because Ben then, on his own during this meeting with the state president, brought up the fact that I had been sending all these lengthy faith-promoting emails to my daughter every week. I then talked about how my daughter showed up at my office the day she got back from her mission, and we cried and hugged and chatted for almost an hour. I didn't go into details about our conversation, but I will hear just a little bit from my audience. This was in midsummer of 2017, and my daughter had cut off communication with me since April, so it was quite a surprise when she dropped by my office unannounced. There were tears and hugging, and we did talk for about an hour. It soon became apparent to me that she understood very well why it was I had left her mother, and that she was more concerned with my leaving the church than she was with leaving her mother. To make sure I was understanding this correctly, I asked her, it sounds like you're more concerned about me leaving the church than you are about me leaving your mother, and she frankly admitted that yes, that was true. Now, this complete reversal of the normal order of things may sound strange to people outside Mormonism, but if you're a Mormon, it makes complete sense. Also, some of my more careful listeners may have observed what appears to be a discrepancy regarding my daughter and her contact with me. I had said elsewhere that she cut off contact with me in February of 2018. Well, that is true. She has cut off contact with me twice, once in April of 2017, after which we seem to have patched things up when she got back from her mission, and then again in February of 2018. That's the second time and the last time that she cut off contact with me. Since February of 2018, she has had basically no contact with me. I add this only to avoid allegations that I can't keep my story straight. Going on with my meeting with the state president. The state president then asked me about my feelings regarding the church and the restoration. I hesitated briefly and said I didn't know if I should just tell him how I feel, and he assured me that I could and should do so. Then he made a joke saying that I was being recorded. Yes, the state president actually brought up recording the meeting, and he made a joke out of it. I laughed and said, no, you are the one who is being recorded, and there was more laughter. Later outside when I was talking with my friend, he act- <laughs> later outside when I was talking with my friend in the parking lot, he mentioned that and said he wasn't sure whether I actually was recording it, and I told him, no, I wasn't. I was just kidding, just like the state president was, I presume. But then the state president reiterated his question with some specificity. He asked me about my testimony of Thomas Monson, who was president at the time, Thomas Monson, Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the Restoration. I knew President Monson might be a little tricky for me to respond to. The Restoration was a bit big to talk about, so I went right for Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. I said, I believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. I said, I believe there were times when he was inspired by God, and there were other times when he had made mistakes, some of them big mistakes. The stake president did not disagree. He was doing a lot of listening, I could tell, but I think he was focusing more on my using the word prophet and inspired and didn't question what I meant by mistakes. Here, he could interpret that as whatever he wanted, and I think even CES directors would freely admit Joseph Smith made mistakes, though perhaps not the mistakes I had in my mind when I said it. 
I then went to the Book of Mormon and told him about my testimony of the Book of Mormon. It was a bit of a story, and I asked him if he wanted to hear it. He assured me he did. So I told him about how I prayed my way through the Book of Mormon at the age of 18, and how I received an unmistakable spiritual witness that every word in it is the Word of God. The stake president was loving this part, as I figured he would. Of course, I knew he was going to use that to try to leverage me to return to church, but that's okay, that's his job. He asked me about how I feel about the Book of Mormon now. Do I still feel the same way? I said that I still believe it is inspired, that I can't deny the witness I received when I was 18, that I have read the Book of Mormon more than 20 times and probably closer to 30 times by now, that I have had several papers published in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and in BYU Studies, and that I have to recognize that the Book of Mormon is clearly a product of early 19th century America. He said he was unaware of the papers that I had published, and so I told him he needed to do better research. Once again, there was a lot of laughter about this. But I also said that I see in the Book of Mormon parts that have links to the ancient world. So I don't know what to make of it all, only that I believe Joseph Smith was in some way in touch with the divine, that the Book of Mormon is inspired, but that there is a lot of Joseph Smith in it. That this comes down to the issue of translation. How much is God? How much is Joseph Smith? And how this may reflect a joint venture between the two. I mentioned my work on numerology in the Book of Mormon and how I felt this was significant and was the holy grail of Book of Mormon apologetics. Yes, I actually use that quote. He opened a notebook and wrote down where I told him he could find it in BYU studies. I encouraged him to read it and that I would be interested in knowing what he thought of it. He seemed quite satisfied with this. I knew I hadn't addressed President Thomas Monson and hoped not to. I asked if that answered his question. I had been going on for some time now about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, and he either forgot about President Monson or declined to pursue it. Either way, we went on to something else. He said he had read some of my writings. He didn't say he had listened to podcasts, but had read some of my writings about Mormonism and that he was confused because some of it seems to be very pro-Mormon and other things seem to be challenging or critical of Mormonism. I said that it was kind of like in politics where you have Democrats and Republicans, he is already laughing at this point, by the way. And how some people are not Democrats and they are not Republicans, but they are independents. And they say some things that get the Democrats mad and then they say other things that get the Republicans mad. I see myself like that as a Mormon. Sometimes I say things that get Mormons mad and other times I say things that get anti-Mormons mad. But that what I am doing is what I was taught by the LDS Church, to follow the truth wherever it leads. He seemed to like that as well. He said he had heard from a couple of people... <clears throat> he said that he had heard from a couple of people that things I had written had upset them or perhaps influenced them to leave the church. So now we're starting to get to the nubbin of why the meeting. I was surprised. Frankly, I was. And I said, who? He begged off of answering that question. He did not answer who it was. I told him that if he would give his sources on me, then I would give my sources on him. Once again, there was a lot of laughter. I asked if they had mentioned my name specifically. He assured me they had not, which frankly all started to sound kind of strange. Why would he begin by saying he had heard from a couple of people that they had read things I had written that upset them and perhaps influenced them to leave the church and then admit that they had never mentioned my name? That's why it started to sound kind of strange. I mentioned he said he had read some of what I had written. I asked him what he had read. He had real difficulty here remembering anything. It hadn't been much of anything really, he said, and all he could come up with was something on Adam God and some comments he thought I had made on John DeLynn's webpage. 
I knew about the Adam God stuff because I had written an article that was posted on my blog at Rational Faiths, but I sure couldn't recall making any comments on John DeLynn's website. Who knows, maybe I did, but that seems kind of out of the way and in left field for the state president to come up with or stumble upon. I mean, all he had to do is Google my name and he will come up with a slew of stuff. I then mentioned my lawyer friend. Now, this is a lawyer friend of mine. This is not my friend in the state presidency. This is my lawyer friend who I have mentioned previously in this podcast, who earlier that summer had stumbled upon some writings by Robert Rittner regarding the book of Abraham and had sent me a text message that night saying that his shelf had just been nuked. Making the situation more interesting is that my lawyer friend is married and his wife is the daughter of the stake executive secretary. So you can see how this all starts to coalesce and why it is I'm being brought in to talk to the stake president. Once again, going back to my notes, I then mentioned my lawyer friend who had recently left the church, and I did it by bringing up his executive secretary, the stake president's executive secretary, and I mentioned that his daughter, the secretary's daughter, and her husband, my lawyer friend, had just recently left the church, both of them. The stake president was quick to assure me that the executive secretary's daughter had not left the church, only her husband, my friend. I put my hand to my mouth and said, oops, maybe I said too much. Once again, there was a lot of laughter, but I think it might have been a little bit nervous at this point on the part of the state president, although I think he actually thought he knew more about the situation than I did, which was humorous in its own regard, because actually she was either out of the church at the time or on her way out, regardless of what it was she was telling her dad, the state president's secretary, and what her dad was telling the state president. But it was a good thing I brought up this subject because then the state president admitted that that is who he was talking about. In other words, the couple of people who had been influenced negatively by what I write ended up being one person, my lawyer friend, who actually was not influenced by me in the least. So I told him about how I would talk with my lawyer friend about church-related things periodically on the phone how my lawyer friend had his own opinions and how he would often push back against my thoughts with his own and we would have good discussions about things. I told the stake president how a few months prior, my friend had texted me on a Saturday evening that his shelf had just been nuked. To my mild surprise, the stake president did not understand the reference to a shelf. So at this point, my friend in the state presidency has just been sitting there in a chair to my immediate right. He hadn't been saying a whole lot of things, although he had been laughing quite a bit throughout the meeting. So I turned to him and I asked him to explain to the state president what the reference means to a shelf getting nuked. (laughs) So I get to sit there then and watch my friend, the second counselor in the state presidency, explain to the state president what is meant by a shelf. The state president then asked me what had nuked the shelf of my attorney friend, and I told him it was Robert Rittner writing on the book of Abraham. I asked if the state president knew who Robert Rittner was, and he did not. I explained who he was and some of the writings he has done on the book of Abraham, and that my lawyer friend had gotten a hold of some of it and read it, and he learned things in it he never heard before about the book of Abraham, and it nuked his shelf. Nobody wanted to ask or talk about the problems in the book of Abraham in this meeting, so we all acted like it was something we all understood, which I think was probably true for at least two out of the three people in the room. I said that I had never tried to convince or persuade anybody to leave the church, which, by the way, is correct. That is not my job. It is not my role. That is a decision that is up to every individual to make. That I was actually sad when I found out that my lawyer friend got his shelf nuked by Robert Rittner. 
Then the state president said he was very glad to hear me say that because he was concerned that I might be actively seeking to lead people away from the church. This signaled to me that this was the big mine hidden in the harbor that had really been behind the meeting and that I had successfully navigated my way around it. This is running long, so I'm going to have to summarize a few points now. He asked me what I thought of the church's recent efforts to be more transparent with the essays they had published. He then asked if I thought it was voluntary or if it had been forced. He actually asked me that. I was surprised by this question. So I told him that in my opinion, it had definitely been forced. And based on my studies and research, it seemed clear that the church had been dragged kicking and screaming to the transparency table because of the internet. He did not ask me any follow-up questions about that. I talked about my involvement in apologetics in the 1980s and how I gradually realized that sometimes when I was arguing or discussing a point, my argument was based on the idea that I knew of another piece of information that might undercut my argument and that I was counting on my opponent not knowing that piece of information in order for me to win the argument. I brought up the example of Daniel Peterson. I asked if he knew who he was. He didn't. My friend did, though. <laughs> I explained he was a professor of Islamic studies at BYU and the top apologist in the church. No time to go into detail now, but I basically described the Alma argument in the Book of Mormon being an obviously woman's name about the land deed discovered by Yigal Yadin in a dig in Israel in 1968 with the name Alma as a man's name, how that is a huge piece of evidence in favor of the Book of Mormon, but how I then learned that Alma was also a man's name in the time and area of Joseph Smith and how that undercuts the argument, how I communicated directly with Daniel Peterson on the issue, how he told me he knew about it, but defended his not mentioning it by saying he wasn't saying anything that wasn't true, and how my estimation of Daniel Peterson kind of cratered after that. I then brought up the papers I had written for BYU Studies and asked if he knew John Welch. He eagerly said he did, that he had heard the name. So, I went into detail about working closely with John Welch on my papers, what a nice man he is, and how he had worked hard to get my first BYU Studies paper published, even over opposition, from other members of the editorial board because of its controversial nature. How in my second paper for BYU Studies, it hit upon an issue of interest to John Welch and how he contributed a great deal of ideas in his own research to the paper. I mentioned all the church books I read before my mission and the spiritual experience I had reading the King Follett Discourse in the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith the first time, and all the books I read in the 1980s, and how I found that I was reading the same thing over and over and over again, and how I came to the realization that the accepted teachings in Mormonism are very definite, finite, and restricted, that you can't go beyond that because here there be dragons, and you are going to get swallowed up or something if you try to go beyond what is the correlated version of Mormonism? I said I had an affinity for books by Joseph Fielding McConkie because even though he would say the same things over and over like the other books, it always seemed like he was able to come up with a nugget or two of personal insight that made it worthwhile. I said that by the end of the 1980s, I was reading the Book of Mormon and seeing things in it that nobody else had seen and making connections that nobody else had made. How I wrote up a brief paper about something along those lines and sent it to Joseph Fielding McConkie for him to read. How he had written me back a nice letter on BYU stationery that he had read my paper, that he complimented me by saying, I think well and write well, and that Joseph Fielding McConkie encouraged me to continue because, in his words, there is a distinct lack of both 
thinking well, and writing well. There is a distinct lack of both in the church at present. Okay, I admit, I was shamelessly name-dropping all over the place by this point in the meeting, but I was having a wonderful time doing it. I finally turned around and looked at the clock on the wall to see it was seven minutes to nine and asked the stake president how much more time we have because I could go on like this all night. I mean, I was totally driving the bus by this point. He said... We had only seven more minutes, so he wanted to cut it off at nine. I don't blame him. He's a busy man. He's got to get back home and spend some time with his family. He said we had only seven more minutes, so I said I would finish by then and thanked him for taking so much time to talk to me and staying so late. I got done with whatever it was I was saying, and then he wanted to say some things. This was really the moment he was waiting for. The stake president said that he didn't know if I understood this or appreciated this, but that he is my priesthood leader. And he bore his testimony about how the priesthood is in the LDS church, and the ordinances are there, and it is the only way to salvation. Here I was biting my tongue, waiting to see where this would lead. I also thought that here this guy had listened to me drone on for over an hour, and I could at least be polite enough to hear him out. He ended not by commanding me, or anything like that, but by extending an invitation to me to come back to church. He said that the church needs people like me in it. Earlier in our conversation, I had already told him that I had increasingly felt marginalized in the church and even ostracized, though I said that ostracized was probably too big a word. But there was an element of that in it, that the members were happy to see me in church because it made them feel better about themselves, but they weren't interested in hearing anything I had to say. So I responded to his invitation by thanking him for it, but by saying that years of experience had taught me that the members of the church didn't feel the same way he did. The state president said he wasn't sure how this meeting was going to go when it started, but that he was very glad to have met me and that I was a very likable person. I agreed about how the meeting went, and I told him that I wanted him to know that his second counselor, and here I was motioning to my friend, that his second counselor is a man of unquestionable integrity and that my heart loves him. This induced good feelings all around, as may be imagined. We ended on a good note. We shook hands, and I left. I think it was a very positive and uplifting experience. And after that meeting, although it has now been over two years since it occurred, I have had no more communications nor meetings with the stake president, although I have met with the second counselor occasionally to chat about Mormonism and the podcast, of which, by the way, he is an avid listener. So let me give a shout-out to you right now, Ben. Ben, you are the greatest. I love you, man. If ever there were a person who is a good example of what Mormons should be, it's you. So that is the story of my meeting with the stake president on the evening of September 14th, 2017. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you did enjoy it, and if you enjoyed the other podcasts here at Radio Free Mormon, I encourage you to go right now to the RadioFreeMormon.org website and make a monthly contribution today. $5, $10, $15, whatever you can afford a month. Your contributions will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 